Hello and welcome to Lost in Science. We are going back through our archives again this week. Claire is going to fill us in on a conservation project involving the 40 spotted pardalote, an endangered bird in Tasmania. I will be revisiting our story on hot black ionic ice and Chris will be taking us through the physics behind the tears of wine. Please stay tuned. know how much I love a conservation story well let me tell you this one has it all rare and difficult birds check parasitic worms check human invention check and of course like any good story chicken feathers check (laughs) can you fit in some crafting as well Claire Oh my goodness, there is so much crafting in this. How did you know? I think I might have heard this story, yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, strap yourselves in, even though you might have heard it, because it is a rollicking good tale. It is the story of the 40-spotted pardalote. So let's start at the start. The 40-spotted pardalote is an extremely rare Tasmanian songbird. So it's about the size of a ping-pong ball. It has lovely green feathers, very olive green, and a smattering of, you guessed it, spots on its wings. Would Uh, there be 40 spots? I assume. I assume. Um, Now, when I say rare, I mean so rare it is about to go extinct, caused mostly by deforestation across much of mainland Tasmania. And it now survives in pockets, mostly on islands off the east coast of Tassie. So think your Bruni Islands and your Mariah Islands. And it's in very small numbers. Uh, What is also very remarkable about the 40-spotted pardalote is that they forage mostly in the foliage of white gums. And uh, what they eat there is something called manna or mana, uh, which is a sweet and crystallized form of tree sap. Um, Now, I'm told that many Australian feeds, sorry, I'm told that many Australian birds feed on manna but these little birds are unique because they sort of farm it so they use their beaks um, to put these tiny little nicks in leaves and stems um, and through these little nicks the white gum actually stimulates more of this mana production so they're not only sort of eating it but they're also stimulating the plant to produce more of it that's pretty smart very smart very smart um okay so Obviously, you are inevitably charmed by our protagonist bird. Um, So now I will introduce you to our villain, our parasitic villain. Um, This is Passeromyia longicornis. Um, and it is the larvae of this species. So, yeah, this is, this parasite is the larval stage of a fly that is um, very closely related to your ordinary everyday house fly. Uh, but this fly parasitizes young birds, and it does that by boring into the exposed skin of baby birds. And then once it's in there, it feasts on their bloods, on, the, on their blood, and then... The maggots get really fat and the baby birds eventually end up dying. Oh, that sounds, that sounds really unpleasant. It Ooh. sounds very unpleasant. Such smart and cute little birds. I know. 
I know. And and it, it's not just affecting a couple of these 40-spotted partilotes. It's having um, truly decimating effects on the species. So it's killing um, up to f- 9 out of 10 partilotes in, in some of the areas. So that's, um, yeah, that's a huge huge decimation of the population of some of a population that's already at risk um and you know if this if the species was healthy and numbers were larger and stronger then the parasite wouldn't be so much of an issue parasites are part of the ecosystem you know we don't want to remove them um but because the numbers are so low and the population so fragmented um this fly larvae parasites now threatening the survival this the entire survival of this this species so uh, now enter stage left researchers from the Difficult Birds Research Group from the Australian National University. The so Difficult Fernanda, Birds Research Group. Yes, the Difficult Birds Research Group. If you haven't heard Wait. of the Difficult Birds Research Group, you should definitely look them up online. They are fantastic. Way to uh, victim blame the birds <laughs> there, <Yeah>. I think. <laughs> or is the research group difficult? Is it the... <laughs> no, no, it's the birds. Okay. They're difficult. They're difficult birds. You know, like um, you know, not 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 difficult in the way that they act with each other. I imagine, but more difficult as in the problems that face them oh, okay. are difficult. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay, so um, our researchers Fernanda Alves and Diane Stoyanovic are working out the best and most effective way to help. Uh, protect the 40-spotted partilote from attack by the um, maggot parasites. Um, And incredibly, they have figured out a way, and it's very clever. It involved, first of all, understanding that the partilotes love to make soft, warm nests, as a lot of birds do. Um, But these nests are lined with stray feathers of other birds that they find on the forest floor. And, I mean... I don't spend all my time looking for feathers on the forest floor like um, a partilote who's making their nest would, but you don't often find that many, you know, lovely feathers that would work well to line your nest. So the partilotes have quite a hard time, you know, it's time consuming and it's difficult work to try and find all these feathers. Yes. Um, I don't know much about 40 spotted partilotes, but I've familiar with like some other spotted partilotes that we see around in, uh-huh. in Melbourne here. And I know that they, their nests are in burrows in the ground. Are these 40 spotted partilotes also burrowing birds? No, these, these birds, um, uh, nest in trees. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they nest in trees and they nest in, um, um, have these like extremely warm, like feather-lined nests, and so the researchers have decided to exploit the fact that the feathers are in short supply, and bring in their own supply of feathers, special feathers, chicken feathers, not just chicken feathers, but sterilized chicken feathers that are laced with a bird-safe insecticide that stops the parasitic fly developing in their nest. So. Um, the researchers went about, I guess you would say, MacGyvering or crafting um, a chicken feather sort of shop front that was made from scrap wire, some duct tape and some of those round plastic trays that you get at the bottom of pot plants. Um, And they've created what's effectively a sort of self-service feather dispenser, uh, putting them in forests where the 40 spotted partilotes were building their nests. Um, 
And according to the researchers, it didn't take long before the part alerts found these um, free and easily accessible building materials. Uh, in fact, their conversation article, um, which you can read online, includes the hilarious quote, our dispensers were as busy as the toilet paper aisle during a pandemic. <laughs> Lol, researchers. I love it. <laughs> um, and when they went back to check, some of the birds' nests were um, at least partially, and some of them were almost mostly made from the medicated feathers. So, um, so I assume that basically, so the idea is to provide them with a supply of parasite-free feathers. Yeah. And the parasite-ridden kind of wormy ones that would have got off the forest floor. Well, not just parasite-free, but ones that have insecticide mm. in them. So um, they are going to, um, you know, kill any potential parasites that could be in any of the other ones. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm sure you're wondering how the results went um, and, yeah, whether more partilotes survived because of the pesticide-treated chicken feathers. Um, well, yes, they did. Survival of chicks dramatically improved in the nests built with the insecticide-treated feathers and on average 95% of chicks from these birds that use the treated chicken feathers survived compared with 8% of the birds that used feathers without insecticide. So that's a huge, that's, that's a huge amazing. jump. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, so this is more than, I guess, a tenfold increase in nest survival. Um, and for anyone out there um, feeling sorry for the parasites, and that's fair enough, um, you know, everyone's got to make their way in the world. Um, never fear, there are other birds who also fall victim to these parasites. So it's not like this fly will be driven to extinction. Um, but what has happened, though, is that the researchers, through understanding their birdie behaviours, have managed to create this clever, cheap and wonderfully effective innovation. <music> probably had to do chemistry of some description at school and it's so full of rules uh, but it does seem to be a pretty simple simple combination of maths dictating the way various substances interact in predictable ways that's that's my takeaway from chemistry from when I had to study it Right. I mean, I'm sure you've um, made a lot of uh, Year 12 students around the country feel much more confident about their um, upcoming <laughs> chemistry exams. Guys, it's just maths and how maths dictate, you know, the movement of atoms. <laughs> hey, look, it, you know, as far as it goes, you can be right or you can be not right in chemistry. <laughs> that's that's kind of how it rolls. Yeah. Um, but we, okay, so we have all the atoms on the periodic table representing all the known elements and a couple of predicted ones that haven't been seen, but they're likely to exist. And we know that when combined certain ways, those atoms form molecules in, again, pretty predictable ways that have been demonstrated repeatedly with experiments to show how they consistently make those molecules. And we also know that matter like atoms and molecules behave in certain ways according to conditions 
in their environment. And there are various phases of matter. Claire, do you know what the phases of matter are? Oh, you mean um, like gas, liquid and solid? Yeah, and? Oh, um, and plasma. And plasma. Yeah. Exactly. So we've got liquids, gases, solids, our most, most commonly encountered phase of matter, and we have a pretty good understanding of them and how they behave. If you superheat a substance, it can create another phase of matter called plasma, which has its own properties again, and only occurs under very specific circumstances, under immense heat and pressure, like, you know, in a star or somewhere like that is probably where we would most likely be able to find plasma. Um, You're not going to find plasma in your kitchen? No, probably not. Right, okay. No. Um, Although, you know, if you you built the right machines, you could probably make some. I don't recommend it. It's not not safe for home use. Fantastic. Now, if we take something simple like water and put it under very extreme conditions, say extreme heat and pressure what would we expect to happen extreme heat extreme pressure you'd think it would i guess vaporize turn into a gas right water vapor you would you would think that mm. you would think it would turn into a gas or maybe even plasma if the pressure and, and heat was enough but if we took water and did that to it we would not get that oh. as some scientists from the lawrence livermore national laboratory in california showed last year They put a droplet of water under very extreme heat and pressure using super super powerful lasers. (laughs) And, well, they weren't exactly surprised to find it formed a new kind of solid, which is basically hot black ice. What? So they've turned water into a substance which is solid... And it's hot and it's black, but it's made of water. Hang on. Is that... Whoa, what? Have they just burnt the water? (laughs) No, the water's still there. Um, But it's black. It's black and it's hot. (laughs) It's hot. Yeah. Ice and water have a very simple chemical formula. It's two hydrogen atoms and one one oxygen atom, H2O. And ice crystals can form in up to 17 different crystalline patterns, depending on the conditions that they're in. Um, There are 12 distinct types of ice crystals already recorded, but they are mostly cold and they're more or less transparent, which is like the ice cubes you get out of the freezer. This uh, new black hot ice is solid, but it's four times heavier than normal ice. And really quite hot. It has a melting point of around 4,700 degrees Celsius. Why is it so heavy? Because it's condensed. It's like it's like been pushed into this shape oh. by the extreme heat and pressure. So it's a lot denser. Yeah. Um, and it conducts electricity like a metal. Whoa. Yeah. So it's really weird stuff that they've discovered. What are they Possibly calling the it? Em- well, it's called super ionic ice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because mm. it's super ionic. Yeah. Um, but probably the most amazing thing about this discovery is that it answers a lot of questions about some of the giant planets in our solar system, like Neptune and Uranus. They are frozen. They're not 
they're not gas giants like like Saturn and Jupiter. They are frozen planets. But they could never work out what made them up because they were they were too they're too small for it to be made of regular ice. Mm-hmm. So what was actually making up the core of these planets? And now they actually think that it's this super ionic black ice that is making up the bulk of these planets. So possibly, uh, so these gigantic planets have weird magnetic poles and the presence in their makeup of this new super ionic black ice could explain why those magnetic poles are so hard to pin down because they're being affected by the electrical conductivity of the super ionic ice that's forming these planets. So the crystalline crystalline structure is quite different. The water molecules separate into oxygen, which forms a kind of cube, sort of like Mm. a lattice of boxes all joined together. And the hydrogen moves around inside this framework of oxygen cubes. So it's a completely different kind of water than we've ever seen before. And is that is that common in solid structures that you would have hydrogen atoms moving throughout? It, it seems, yeah. It's really unusual and it hasn't been seen before, but this research tends to suggest that this might be the most common form of water in the universe. Hang on, What? Yeah, so all of the all of the H2O, most of it is in this form of hot black ice and not in the form of frozen water as we know it at all. Um, so it's pretty amazing. But what these guys are thinking is that they can possibly get into a new era or a new area of research in materials physics. Um, the data that they collected doing this to this droplet of water matched exactly their predictions about how it was going to behave. So what they're thinking is that they can predict the way other things will behave when put under certain conditions. Mm. And what they're saying is that in the future, we may be able to create new materials with whatever properties they like. Wow. So they can build a substance to order based on what you want it to do which is a pretty huge leap forward in sort of materials technology. Um, so it's it's a pretty amazing discovery. I'm still sort of amazed that, that this didn't get more attention when this happened last year. Um, it just goes to show that even in a field as well understood as chemis- chemistry, with a substance as common as water, there is still new science to discover. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Tears of wine have been... It's a phenomenon with a good vintage. It's been known about for centuries. Now, what is it, though? Um, in fact, Chris, there are... can you can you clearly explain what you're talking about here? Okay, so what happens is when you... Certain wines, um, they will form around the glass above the liquid there will be some small drops formed it's kind of a ring of you see a a thin ring of liquid and that drops like tears come down from it so you can sort of see lines they're almost like translucent lines that are are coming down from the uppermost part of where the liquid was 
Yeah, something like that. As I said, look, this has been known about for for centuries. There was actually uh, allegedly a line in the Bible that mentions it. Um, it talks about the wine moving by itself. It says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his colour in the cup, when it moveth itself all right. So that's some people saying, oh, it's because the wine is moving. That's the tears. Um, but that line is also used because it's kind of a clue to what's going on with the, the wine. Because your experts, your people in the trade, like, like Claire, who yeah, yeah, know yeah. The, the legs of wine, often think, oh, okay, this is a sign that the wine is really good. That's what, I, what I've heard, what um, yeah. people in the biz tell me. But really, all it means is that there is high alcohol content. Oh, doesn't that mean good? Chris. Well, okay, that could be construed <laughs> as good. Um, it could also be explained why it gives you tears as well. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of depth to this. There's, there's a yeah. lot going on here. But look, the basic phenomenon is known as the Marangoni effect. It's named after the Italian physicist Carlo Marangoni, who actually did his thesis, his doctoral thesis on this topic, way back in 1865. Wow. Yeah. That was a while ago. That was a while ago. That was... Just as an aside, could you find um, his published work online? Uh, I haven't looked it up. I don't speak Italian. I don't read Italian. I don't read 19th century (laughs) Italian, I'm sure. Oh, he didn't didn't translate it? Into modern English? I don't think so. Ah. But look, what it means, what the Marangoni effect is, when you have two regions uh, in a fluid with different surface tension then the liquid will flow from the lower surface tension to the higher surface tension. Because the higher surface tension is kind of pulling on it more. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like a potential sense? thing. Yeah, it, it forms a sort of a potential. Like this, this effect can be seen uh, in lots of places. It is actually used in manufacturing. It can be seen apparently in soap films or surfactant films, like a detergent, like form, soap forms of film. Um, what happens there is uh, if the, the film thins out for some reason, then that reduces the surface tension in that part. and So it increases the surface tension in that part, and so it the fluid will go and fill up the thinning out bit. So it makes the, um, the film stable by, you know, it evens out the areas of surface tension. So it's a nice little effect that it has kind of in a practical sense, but also works well with wine because alcohol has a lower surface tension than water. So what happens, I have, I've got an empty wine glass here. But you do, I can, I can verify that. I am, I'm going to be using this later on. But when you have, say, you know when you have a liquid in a container and it forms a meniscus where it kind of climbs up the edge of the, of the glass. Yes. Yes. So that bit where it climbs up the edge of the glass, um, that is thinner than the rest of it. And so the alcohol in that section will evaporate more than in right. the main part. Mm-hmm. And alcohol has a lower surface tension than, than water. So what this means is there is more water around the edge than there is in the middle. And so it will move towards the area of higher surface tension, which is around the edge. And this causes it effectively to climb up the sides of the glass. You got that? Yeah. Yeah. But then the question remained, why does it form these tiers? Now, this is basically the subject of the paper that was published in March. Uh, in the journal Physical Review Fluids, a team from the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, they did some, they did a lot of maths, a lot of partial differential equations. Uh, and they did some experiments. They used different kinds of glasses, like conical glasses. They found were really big, like a martini glass kind of thing. Mm. And they used, well, they used port wine, 
um, because that was a fairly high alcohol content. And they found that... I hope they used, you know, they didn't use conical flasks, just conical glasses. Well, a conical because, flask you know, goes you should... around the wrong way, doesn't it? I know, yeah. I know. But also, never drink out of your labware, am I right? Yeah, yeah, it's a bad practice. Well, you clean it, don't you? It's a bad practice. I don't expect physicists to understand, but it is a bad practice. Yeah, we don't, we don't deal with that kind of stuff. No, no. We'll drink out of anything, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So what they found happens is that, and we're gonna we're gonna try and repeat this in a bit because they said you know they gave instructions for how to repeat this phenomenon at the dinner table is the way they put it. Um, (laughs) It uh, the basically the wine travels up the glass in a wave. It's specifically what they call a reverse under compressive shock wave. Under compressive. Under compressive. So it sounds a bit under impressive. (laughs) A compressive wave. Basically, it's when you have the stuff in, you have a wavefront, the stuff in the bulk of the wave, behind the wavefront, is moving faster than the stuff in front. And so that's kind of pushing forward like that, right? Right, yep. And under compressive, in this situation, but essentially the, the stuff behind the wavefront is moving slower than the wavefront. And so it kind of thins out. So you actually get this, that's why you get this kind of band moving up the glass, because it's thinning out behind the wavefront. Right. They're uh, waves you don't want to surf at the beach, right? No, that would that would probably, yeah, do you some damage, I reckon. Yeah, you would kind of end up dumped into the sand or something like that. So one of the characteristics of a reverse under compressive shock wave, as you probably realise, is that there, if any perturbations or imperfections will go through the wave instead of being carried along with it. So these imperfections become the tears that then drip down from the wave front. Okay, so we're going to try and repeat this. I hope you've got your your wine ready. ready. Um, I am going to actually... At the ready. Good, thank you. Um, Claire, I can see you've got a a nice glass there. Nice glass of red uh, Shiraz. I'm actually going to use some sherry. No, sorry, brandy. Brandy, sorry. Um, Because this has like 37% alcohol. If this doesn't work, nothing will. Um, So the instructions, I I didn't give you instructions before we started this, so I can see you already broken it. Um... They said to they say to pour a bit of the wine into the glass and then put a lid on it. The reason you put the lid on it is, and this may not be a problem for you, Claire, is to stop it evaporating too much because what you do, first of all, you try to have to wet the glass. So you swirl it around so that the glass is actually wet because the wave works better when it's wet than when it's dry. Swirling, swirling. Swirling. Yep. And then you yep. let it sit for a bit. Okay. Sitting. Okay. It yeah, is now sitting. Seconds. Now, I can't say this is always going to 100% work, but we're going to try it. And then the idea is if you take the lid off, or at least in my situation, then what you'll find is that you will have, the evaporation will start and you'll get your tears. Now, in my with my um, sherry, I'm going to hold that up to the camera. I don't know if you guys can see that. No, you can't. Oh, yeah, a little, yeah. You can see the the tears running down from a, a, a ridge, like a circle that's around the top of the wine. Yes. Yeah. Like a high watermark almost. You see all this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a high watermark. Yeah. Um, how's yours going, Claire? Yep. Yep. I've got some tears and a high watermark. Excellent. Excellent. What, and what um, alcohol concentration do you know on your wine? 15. 15. That should be good enough. Yeah. Excellent. Stu, did you get anything there going uh, on with yeah, yours? Uh, yeah, a little bit, but uh, I think mine's only about 12%. Like I said, this is kind of used by people to, to um, say, the measure the quality of wine. That 
allegedly. Essentially, it's measuring, like I said, just the alcohol content. If you think that's a good quality wine is high alcohol, then good on you. If that's what you're looking for, it is a way to do test the alcohol content. But essentially, it's something you can try at home if you're home bored um, and all you've got is wine. Well, you probably don't have much of a problem, but here's something you can do with it just in case. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.